Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 10 of The Display Show. I'm your host, Brian Berkeley, and I'm here for interactive discussions with key display industry leaders and influencers. Today's episode features Helga Seetzen, who is a serial entrepreneur, a recent past president of SID, and CEO of Tandem Launch, which is based in Montreal, Canada. We talked about what it takes to run a technology incubator. We heard the rest of the story about burning display demos that we first learned about in episode number nine, and we spoke about SID's current and future path. Please don't forget to click subscribe and hit the bell for notification of new episodes. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Helga Seetzen. And if you're interested in starting a high-tech company, this episode is for you. Helga is a serial entrepreneur turned investor. He works as the CEO of Tandem Launch Ventures, a startup foundry that he launched back in 2010. Prior to Tandem Launch, he founded Brightside Technologies, a company that developed local dimming for high dynamic range display technologies, which was later sold to Dolby Labs in 2007. His incubator has created over 20 technology companies, which are now collectively worth over a half a billion dollars in market capitalization. He serves on the board of over 20 different organizations, including the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, and over a dozen private corporations. Helga received a PhD in Imaging Technology from the University of British Columbia. He holds over 80 patents with an additional 50 pending U.S. applications, and he has received numerous awards for his many accomplishments. Helga, welcome to The Display Show. Thanks a lot. Good to have you. You know, you and I work together extensively on the board of the Society for Information Display, which is also known as SID, but we actually met many years earlier in Korea. At that time, you were in the process of growing uh, Sunnybrook, which later became Brightside Technologies. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but for all of our mutual worldwide experience, you're probably one of the most international people that I know. So we, we should start there. You, you grew up in Germany and have German citizenship. Your higher education was in an English-speaking portion of Canada, uh, and you now live in Montreal, which is a French-speaking part of Canada, of course. How many, how many languages do you speak fluently? That's a, that's a good question that changes over time. Uh, I've, uh, I've lived in a number of different places, as you just mentioned, and uh, you know, my fluency has sort of gone up and down depending on where I live. So I grew up in Germany, obviously speak German. Uh, I then uh, learned French as my first foreign language. I uh, learned Russian, actually, uh, which is obviously a lot less fluent these days. Uh, French comes in very useful here in Montreal. Uh, then I did my undergrad in Vancouver, um, uh, speaking English primarily, and so I've I've sort of maneuvered the linguistic current, and uh, that, that's reflected in my family. So my, uh, my wife speaks French with the kids, I speak German with the kids, and the kids, you know, their environment speaks English with them in French and lots of other languages, and so it's a, it's a, the, a mishmash of uh, linguistic uh, delicacies. Wow. Um, in, in our last episode with Ajit Nainan of uh, Dolby, we heard about the Dolby acquisition of Brightside, your company. And even though it was a small startup, Brightside led to the successful commercialization of LCD local dimming, which was a foundational technology for high dynamic range displays. I remember meeting you at that first demo near Migum Station in Bundang, which is south of Seoul. So please tell us the story of what led you to start the company and to develop that technology. 
Uh, yeah, that was actually uh, quite a journey. So as, as I just mentioned, I arrived and, uh, in Vancouver through Mondragat at uh, UBC and um, to a somewhat wobbly path, uh, very early in Mondragat, ended up in a lab of a professor called Lauren Whitehead, who had worked on, um, uh, well, he really worked on uh, microstructured optical surfaces for lighting and things like that. And uh, uh, he had done a lot of work on LED lighting um, and had been commissioned by the Natural Research Council of Canada to do a project to um, study essentially what light fixtures would be good for office workers, whether it's up lights or down lights or LED lights or fluorescents or whatever. And um, to do that study, NRC had built mock offices, you know, cubicles essentially, with different light fixtures and then put people in it. And obviously, while very accurate, that, that would take forever. Uh, and so instead, Lauren said, why don't we just use a display to do this? Uh, and it turns out something as simple as uh, an image of an office desk with a light bulb in it is impossible for a display to reproduce. Actually, still today, other than the, some, some of the Pulsar technology out in at Dolby's lab, there aren't really any displays that can get, uh, commercial displays, and get to the brightness levels of just a ceiling light fixture. Um, back then, there definitely weren't. So we started working on this, um, on this prototype, basically, just to do the study. And I, I built these prototypes. I went out to uh, Toronto, to uh, uh, McGill, where we, where we executed some of this research. And uh, when it was done, we just wanted to shelve it. And, you know, we, we thought we we're done with it. Um, and that's when the inspiration came to say, these images look really pretty. Like outside of lighting research studies, this would just make really beautiful displays. And uh, we then came up with the concept of using LEDs in, in the, the software to make all this stuff happen. Uh, and, and eventually decided to form a company around it because it felt like the world should have access to this kind of technology. And probably very shortly thereafter, I bumped into you at some sort. It was one of our earliest sort of commercial trips, really. Oh, and I, I remember it well. It was this big demo, and it was loud. It had tons of fans. Uh, we learned from Ajit uh, in the last episode that at one point, I guess this demo caught on fire. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yep. Is that a true story? It's an absolutely true story. So we were at Kodak, and um, we were we were doing a demo of this display at Kodak, and the uh, display had two parts to it. There was this big 18-inch, uh, we built multiple displays, but that particular one, 18-inch display top area, and then there was on the bottom a base, and the, the top area had, you know, a 1,000 LEDs, and back then there were no LED drivers. These were like high-power, one-watt LEDs for lighting. And so everything was fed with like five volts. And so in the base, we had two one kilowatt power supplies that routed five volts up to at basically 200 amps a pop through cables that were basically jumper cables, like giant, you know, like half inch thick stranded copper uh, wires. And one of those little copper strands in the middle of the demo had gotten loose and shorted to the, uh, to the chassis causing, you know, essentially 200 amps to short into the system, which instantly vaporized the insulation of the wire and everything else that was around it, shooting out in, you know, belching smoke and flame, thick rubber smoke. Um, and uh, not only were we able to extinguish that, um, we were able to field repair it um, by, well, basically me opening it up, putting a screwdriver bit into the fuse to make sure that it keeps running again, and then holding the cable in a 
in a napkin off the ground, <laughs> praying the whole time that there wouldn't be another short that would evaporate me. Um, and we did the demo. So, wow. so yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm a physicist, not an electric engineer. That's, so that's a great story. So, so the problem wasn't that you had essentially a space heater for your LED array, but the, the wiring to the space heater was uh, uh, short. Exactly. Yeah, we, sh- we shorted two kilowatts of power, right, 400 amps in one shot. That, that will leave a mark. That'll do it. Um, so, so tell us uh, what some of the key challenges uh, were for a technology startup in, in Canada. There were, there were a lot of challenges, right? So I would maybe group them into three categories. So there were challenges about developing this particular technology. It was, a, at the time, a pretty novel thought. You know, at the time, displays were just not computational devices. They were, you know, they were like boxes. They had a timing controller board. You got a signal in and that was it. So this notion that you had to have a dynamic image formation, that you have processors in the display, that you had to, you know, drive the backlight as an actual electronics device with active image content and the LCD uh, all that was kind of new at the time, and that took a lot of evangelism, even just convincing people that, you know, there is such a thing as more than 8-bit. I remember going to my first Display Week conference and the various audience members just go, no, 8-bit is good enough. Like, there you go, right? We don't need more than 255 steps of, of intensity done. Um, then there were obviously all the challenges of building a startup, period, right? Operations, execution, human resources, fundraising, all that stuff. And then lastly... What was difficult is that we incorporated uh, Sunnybrook, which would become Brightside, uh, right after the dot-com crash, right? So 2002, uh, February 2002, we are getting started with the incorporation. Late 2020, uh, 2001, we had started with the project. Uh, this is right after the bubble burst, right? And so there is no venture capital. The angels are all wiped out. There's, there's no financing. And so here I am. Uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever I was, a 21-year-old or something, 22-year-old uh, undergrad student with a horrifying Germanic accent uh, trying to explain that we're going to build a hardware-centric, you know, startup in the display space. And you can just imagine the exciting direction that that got from the remaining venture capital you know, community. Um, well, that's, in spite of it all, something that you, you persevered and you were successful. So what do you think against all those odds were the key factors that led to your success with Brightside? <laughs> I, um, um, I mean, I, I wish I would know with certainty, uh, but, but there were some elements that stood out. So one thing that I think we did right is work with people and work with good people. So very, from the very beginning, the, um, the culture of Brightside was to partner. We partnered with Samsung. We partnered with many, many other players in in the you know uh, display side and the backlight side and the uh, video processing, image processing, all the aspects of this thing. Uh, we partnered with universities. We had uh, eleven universities in partnership with us formally that were feeding us intellectual property and you know kind of helping us do this. We had uh, partners in the content industry that were making specialized HDR content for us and, and so forth. So, and that all that together gave us the ability, we, we basically cast a larger shadow than a small startup, right? Like for most of this time, um, I remember when Dolby came to acquire us, the call sheet that had their lawyers listed, right? All their very specialty lawyers for the deal. 
that had more people on it than we had employees, right? And and so we we as a small startup, you know, we had peak, we were maybe forty five people, um, but we had a lot more people contributing to this journey and the story through all these partnerships, which which really was key. Um. So let's see. So work with the right people, work with the right partners. Uh, were there other key learnings from that uh, initial startup success that you had? Oh, you know, many, many, many. And, and many of them I'm realizing now in my sort of own uh, path as an investor, being on the other side of, the, of, of that sort of startup equation. Um, you, um, you know, you perseverance. We had lots of setbacks that we had to get to. Uh, the ability to forgive and move forward. There were lots of moments when either at a, at a human resource level or at a commercial level, you know, bad things happen and, you know, you have to sort of just not hunker down and get all bitter about those things and just move forward, move forward on the mission. Also, a fair degree of innocence helped because I'm not sure, like a lot of times I just got back on the horse and kept riding after some hor horrific outcome because I just didn't know any better. I just didn't know that there was an alternative to that. And so I was just like, just going forward. And, um, but, but honestly, the main one was working with good people, the, um, which is also how I ended up with SID. Uh, um, I had, uh, some of those early collaboration partners were, um, uh, you know, dragged me basically into the, into the society. You being one of them for that. Matter. Yeah. And, and thank you for that. Um, you know, so we should take a break from the topic of entrepreneurship for a moment and uh, talk about SID. Uh, you gave a huge amount of your time and energy to SID, and, and uh, that includes recently serving as the president of SID for uh, two years. And you're still active with the society as, as the most recent past president, which is actually an executive board position. And uh, a lot of people may not realize that serving in the presidential succession at SID involves a 10-year commitment. Uh, and, and in your case, it was even longer because you served as uh, publications uh, chair prior to that. So thank you so much for all of your contributions to, to SID. And the society is stronger today because of you. Thank you. It's been a, it's, it, yeah, it's been a tremendous journey in SID. And... Um, I've made so many good friends over that period. I wouldn't exchange it for anything. It's been just a phenomenal way to be part of a, a real a real community. Um, I, I've found the networking and the friends uh, to be very rewarding. Um, now, you, you made significant operational improvements uh, for the society, uh, not the least of which was your early work to streamline SID's publications. And I have to say, it was... Absolutely uh, a scrambled mess uh, prior to your coming in and sorting everything out, uh, uh, operationally as well as financially. So that alone, your improvements on publications alone saved SID a great deal of money, and it got us a lot more focused to upgrade uh, SID's technical journal and the magazine. Um, and then later on the SID board, you proposed a new governance structure that would make SID leadership more efficient and more effective. So... How much of your business sense was transferable into making these improvements at SID? Yeah, uh, most of it. And, and this is, um, this leads back to the very beginning of my journey with SID. So um, Lou uh, Silverstein was one of our advisors. He's passed away quite a while ago, but he's, you know, one of the, uh, one of the giants in the SID technology community. He, uh, uh, 2003, I think it was, uh, he signed up to be a collaborator with us, with, with our startup, 
and said, you've got to come to this SID thing and you've got to be, join the program committee. Uh, and so he dragged me into the program committee. And I remember sitting down with Lou and I'm like, Lou, I would love to help out here. And this sounds great. And there's so many wonderful people here, but I'm a, I'm an undergrad. Like, what, what on earth do you want from me here, right? Like, what can I possibly contribute? This is like, this room is the program committee has, I don't know, 200 something people that are the absolute, you know, top of the top of their research fields. They're full professors and industry titans. And like, what am I supposed to do here, right? And I, I was struggling with this because I found it very valuable. You know, I attended one meeting and I'm like, this is awesome. I want to be part of this. And I thought, how can I earn my keep here? What can I do to, you know, thank all these fine people who give me their time and attention uh, for this, you know, give something back to the society. And I very early realized that, you know, if, if I wait long enough before I have the academic pedigree that many of my now colleagues have, it's going to take 30 years before I can even catch up. Right. So that's that's not a good trajectory. So. And I thought, but the thing I know how to do is to execute and to operate. I know how to run organizations. I know how to run businesses. I know how to understand financials. And, and you know, that was not as well supplied, let's just say, in SID as the academic side, right? Like there were a lot of people that were great researchers, not a lot of people. In fact, you were one of the fewer people that had kind of business acumen and, and corporate managerial experience. Um, and so... Uh, very quickly, I gravitated towards roles in SID that were more operational uh, in, in nature, right? Whether it's the publications restructuring and, and you know, governance reforms, marketing, uh, you know, restructuring a bunch of other business lines, new negotiating contracts, things like this. Um, so I've, I've, I think it served in just about, well, not all, but almost all of the operational side of the SID volunteer organization um, and very little on the on the kind of academic side of the uh, of the organization, though I guess I was program chair and general chair at some point, but uh, yeah, I'm, not being <laughs> I'm going to give you a little bit more credit for that because I know that you and uh, Lou pulled you in. I guess it was the Applied Vision Human Factors yeah. uh, uh, subcommittee of the program committee, and uh, uh, I've seen some of your technical presentations, so uh, I'm not going to let you get away with uh, minimizing uh, your technical accomplishments, Helga, but. Uh, uh, you know, the, it, it, it is a true statement that uh, there are a lot more technical people at SID and less people that know how to run an organization or to do contracts and, and some of the other operational functions. Um, I, I wonder, as your SID's most recent past president, can you share some thoughts on priorities for the society? So... 2020 and 2021 now have obviously been challenging years for the whole planet and, you know, and for SID. So the, the good news is that we have, prior to that, built up quite a significant cushion uh, financially, but also organizational in terms of human capacity, uh, which, which wasn't the case at all. I remember when I joined the board in 2010, uh, we had just gone to a devastating San Antonio event and we're basically within a, within a single fiscal cycle of bankruptcy as a society. Um, and we, so we, now, we had some, we had yeah. some help from uh, H1N1 and a few other things too, uh, not just the Great Recession. Yeah, exactly. so, yeah. so, so, you know, I remember joining that board and going, oh man, you know, if we do, if we have one more San Antonio, we're broke basically. You know, the whole, this whole like 50 year plus society is, it's, it's lights out. And I, and I told myself, that's not going to happen again. 
uh, and then worked, you know, with you. You were the president uh, subsequent there, somewhere in that period, um, uh, to you know restructure the financials, then restructure the governance structure, uh, restructure the the leadership, the, the the volunteer leadership cluster, and so on. So, so the good news is, as president, uh, my my term was uh, 2019 and 2020, effectively, uh, 2018 to 2020, effectively. My my term was actually extended a bit because. Uh, I guess the, the rest of the board didn't want to change horses in the middle of the COVID crisis. So I, I served a bit longer than the normal term. And uh, I, I was really pleased to see all those kind of things to be done to save for a rainy day coming in useful. So uh, there's a lot of bench strength now on the volunteer organization. A lot of people have stepped up that we had been grooming. A lot of young leaders that we brought in have been taken over uh, obviously, financially, the company is in, in uh, the, 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 the organization is in very good shape. Um, so step one is just to get to COVID, and we are on a great track for that. Uh, Display Week 2021 is going to look really good. It's still going to be delivered online, but it looks uh, it's very well designed with a lot of people signing up for it. And um, beyond that, I think my, my driving passion has always been to expand the scope of SID, uh, you know, bring in more volunteers, but also bring in more topics. I think we, you know, there's sort of this tension. On the one hand, SID is somewhat very narrowly a society for, you know, TFT backplanes and the stuff that lies on top of it. Uh, but at a more broader filter, uh, there's computational imaging in there and uh, other kind of display methodologies and holography <laughs> and all this other cool stuff that I think is worth uh, capturing as well. Helga, related to that, what would you like to see SID become, say, in the next five to ten years? I think SID has a unique opportunity, really. If it, uh, if it manages to capture this broader envelope of, of vision, let's say, of you know, imaging systems, vision systems, and everything that comes around that, uh, that is one of the fastest-growing segments, I think, of, of our industry. You know, when I think about... Uh, you know, mobile or automotive or any kind of entertainment experience, the display and the video experience in general has become the battleground. Um, and, and so I, I, I really would like to see SID become more of a mainstream um, uh, service provider, for lack of a word, word uh, mainstream experience uh, in terms of uh, hitting a larger portion of the overall consumer electronics industry, of the, of the software and computer vision, imaging, AI industry, and because the the culture and the experience of SID is phenomenal, but it's small, right? And so taking that culture and experience and scaling it to broader audiences uh, could, I think, do a lot of good in the world. Does that mean things like putting companies together, or does that mean uh, making better connections at a broader level beyond the display, or going out into the imaging pipeline? Um, Absolutely. I think more and more... Um, we're seeing the collision of domains uh, where both sides get better by working with the other. And I, and I saw this, we talked earlier about uh, the, the challenges with Brightside of introducing this local dimming uh, HDR LED TV concept. Um, we had to connect two of those domains, right? We had to take LCDs, which were, you know, hardware, chemistry, materials type of things that, electrical engineers and, and chemists worked on. And we had to combine that with uh, uh, computational capabilities, not, not just computation as in, you know, pre-processing the, the video, 
But the computation was an integral part of the image formation. With, without the computation and without really careful coupling it to the um, to the to the display hardware, um, you just didn't get a usable image. So it, it was critical that those two things work together. But when we were able to bring those two things together, we were able to build uh, a whole new branch of technology that has now become one of the most sort of active part of the display industry, uh, both on the on the hardware side and the software and the content side. Uh, and so I think there's a lot more opportunities like, like this, bringing AI and deep learning into the envelope of the display hardware, connecting cameras and other sensors with the display aspect, and, and not just treating them as two parts of a, of a chain, but really having them intelligently you know, leverage each other. The, the whole system, then. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's switch gears and, and talk about your incubator. Uh, you know, please tell us about Tandem Launch. Sure. Uh, Tandem Launch is my, uh, my love child of the last decade. So when, um, when we sold uh, Brightside to Dolby, and then I spent a few years at Dolby, uh, sort of laying the foundation with basically with this, the imaging business now, um, I realized I want to do more startups. I love, you know, getting things started. I love creating technology that come, goes into the market and, and all this kind of stuff. And so the problem was I had I'd finished up my PhD during that period. And so short of going back to grad school to do another five years of research or so, coming up with a new idea myself, um, uh, you know, it was going to be hard to build a deep technology venture unless there was a supply of ideas. And so the idea I had is look at the learnings from Brightside in terms of supply of innovation and then proceduralize this to create companies. So in Brightside, I mentioned we had these 11 universities that were working with us and partnering with us. And, you know, over time, they brought in many, many more brilliant ideas, much more exceeding what I was doing. Um, and so I wanted to capture that, but in an institutionalized setting. So what we do at Tandem Launch is... Um, a continuous repeat of the following chain to build companies. We work with large companies, uh, consumer electronics companies, software companies, uh, to identify problems that are worth solving, big kind of paradigm shifting problems. We then work with universities across the globe, and we've worked with just about, you know, almost 100 universities ranging from, you know, Stanford, Caltech, uh, to uh, regional players in all over Europe and North America and many places of Asia um, to find interesting technologies that might solve those problems. We then partner with those universities, assemble a team around those ventures of technologists, uh, entrepreneurial operators, business development, you know, executives, the whole, everything you need, finance, assemble teams around them, finance that whole thing, uh, and then turn it into companies. And once it's a company that has some standalone uh, operational capability, we become a normal venture capital investor uh, that, you know, adds more checks, basically, and helps them scale up. So I was going to ask you what gave you the idea and, and the motivation to start a high-tech incubator, but you, you kind of just answered that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, as my wife frequently and accurately points out, I'm only really good at one thing. Right. And so I build a job around the one thing that I'm good at. Right. I, I really enjoy this sort of um, melding of, uh, you know, business opportunity, market opportunity, deeply te technical kind of concepts and people. Uh, and, and so that's what we do. So every year we create five to eight companies uh, by gluing those ingredients together. 
and, and, and then scaling them up. So we've built 30 odd companies in that manner now uh, and, and really built them, right? So it's not like a normal incubator where somebody just shows up and says, I have an idea, do you want to finance me or help me? We really architect these things from the ground up. And, and for someone like me who is, uh, you know, uh, part operator, part financier and, you know, still residually technologist, this is like dream world, right? Because I get to do all the stuff that I love over and over again. Well, does Tandem Launch have a focus on any specific technologies? You know, are you still interested in display and imaging related activities? Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, we, so yes, we have built a number of companies that are in the display cosmos, right? Both hardware and software. Uh, some of them, many of them have exhibited at the Display Week over the years. Uh, just last year, we sold uh, one of our older companies called Iris Tech to Farisha Electronics in the automotive display space. Uh, we have a few other companies like um, Omniply in the flexible OLED electronic space and Edgehog in the reflective, anti-reflective glass, uh, non-structured glass space. So there's a few companies in our portfolio that touch the display space. Uh, but to be fair, um, I would say the bulk of our portfolio is in the broader vision system space that I described earlier, right? So we have a number of computer vision software companies, AI companies in the computer vision space, camera sensors, uh, video processing, video editing, uh, AI for you know uh, Photoshop kind of equivalent, but but driven by deep learning um, and, and so forth. We've also that that's certainly the center. So the audio video experience. Um, uh, system. Uh, and then we have some kind of branches from that. We've done a bit of work in uh, RF communication technologies. We've done a bit of work in other kind of sensors. Uh, we've built, you know, graphene based uh, speaker companies and uh, MEMS based microphones. And But generally speaking, it's the kind of stuff that the Samsung's, Google's, and, you know, I don't know, Sony's of the world are, are, are you know, see as big disruptive parts of their business, because those are the industry partners that we're working with. Well, there, there's a lot of startups out there, and I think when we were offline, you were talking about something like over 30 uh, startups that have gone through the uh, Tandem Launch portfolio at various stages. Um, I, I'm curious to know how you decide which startups to accept into your incubator. You know, Do you have filter criteria? You have some kind of rating and ranking system that you use to prioritize these. Uh, how do you decide? Yeah. So, so, so again, we don't we don't really get applications from existing startups, right? We build them from scratch. So that's good and bad news. The good news is we can and perfectly pick everything we want, right? Like we we pick the technology, we pick the market opportunity, we pick the team, we hire everybody, we do it together. So we have complete creative control, for lack of a better word, in in assembling these ventures. Um, uh, that's the good news, but it's also the bad news because it means we have all the accountability. Right? If any one of those pieces are screwed up, it's it's we have nobody to blame but ourselves. All right, and so we we address that problem by by using the same maxim that I mentioned at the very beginning, which is working with good people. So Down Launch has a very diverse um, and uh, diverse in every dimension a group of uh, core team members, supporters. Uh, we have a fellow network of people that support us and so forth. So it's, it's, um, and we use, it's, it's been this sort of community that we use to validate technologies, validate ideas, validate business opportunities. We have 
20 plus um, industry partners that work very closely with us. And, you know, I can't disclose those, but um, uh, you can see if you go on Crunchbase, you can see our co-investors in some of our companies, which include Samsung Ventures and Intel Capital multiple times and Bosch Ventures. And, you know, and, and there's a long, long list of others. Um, and, and that is atypical, right? Like there aren't a lot of super early stage little outfits that have that list of co-investors repeatedly and on multiple deals. And it's in part because we're building the kind of companies that resonates with those, with those partners, right? And, and so we're, we're really, it's almost like made to order delivery of, of technology companies. Well, some of our viewers may be considering starting their own company and, I'm wondering what advice you can offer to them. Well, first of all, do it. Um, there's never been a better time for entrepreneurship than now. Uh, capital is abundant, uh, much, much, much more so than it was in 2001 and 2002 when we started. Um, so there's a lot of capital out there. There is a lot more support for entrepreneurship than there was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Um, there is um, a, a a broad recognition that this is not just some crazy outlier profession that a few zealots pursue, but that it's actually a, a sort of a, a, a real qualified profession. So the, the social strain goes down, which trust me, that was an issue. Like the, the most dominant question I got when I started is like, are you going to finish your degree? You better not drop out. Uh, you know, what, you know, when are you, when are you done with your phase? I remember, I remember when um, uh, I was thinking about leaving Dolby uh, and I was talking to my parents about this. I said, I'm going to leave Dolby and I'm going to start a new startup. Uh, this is after I, you know, sold Brightside and done all this stuff. And my mother goes, but, but why? Like, you finally got a real job. Why would you leave this? And I'm like, mom, like, I really didn't, you know. <laughs> so what you had to tell your mom was, mom, this is my job. Being an entrepreneur is a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they've slowly come to, you know, 20 years later, they've come to terms with that. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, so, so building startups is, um, it's a great thing to do. It's a great career path. Uh, I've had an incredible, it's been a privilege working with so many great people, uh, technologists, operators, you know, product people. Uh, I, I wouldn't do anything else in my career and I encourage everybody to give it a shot. Well, I will mention that for those who are interested in learning more about becoming an entrepreneur. You've written some really excellent articles, uh, including a series that you wrote and, and recently published in Information Display Magazine. There were several segments, I think three or four uh, different segments uh, on this. And what we'll do is we will provide links to those articles as part of this episode. Um, is there anything, uh, though, from those articles or otherwise that you'd like to emphasize in particular? Yeah, at, at the risk of repeating myself is work with good people. I, I think... Um, one of the unfortunate tendencies of a lot of first-time entrepreneurs is this notion that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, my, my normal job or my, my university thing. And I want to do a startup and I want to do it so that I can be my own boss and I can, you know, it's my own thing. And, and very often that leads to this like next leap, which is, and therefore, nobody else should be my partner or should work with us or I shouldn't share control. And I should just, it should be my thing, right? And um, that, that is never successful. It just never, like, it, it's like even the entrepreneurs that are idolized with success these days that 
look like single founders. I don't know, like Elon Musk or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. When you just scrape a little bit below the surface, you realize how many key enabling partners were there and how much power and influence they shared with them and how, how bringing those people in the fold really elevated their success, right? And it's only after the fact that it looks like, oh, it was just them, right? So, so make yourself a bit vulnerable, partner with people, uh, work with a lot of good people, as many as you get hold of in any capacities, co-founders, investors, advisors, board members, whatever it is, um, because big success is achieved through collaboration and partnership. It just is. Very, very good advice and, and very helpful. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a bonus question here, too. You know, we're, we're taping this from Silicon Valley, and there's some people have this mentality, maybe because they've never lived anywhere else, that this is kind of the center of the tech universe or the center of entrepreneurship. And, and yet, uh, even in Canada alone, I can say that in areas around the University of Waterloo, uh, UBC, University of British Columbia is another area, there's quite a bit of entrepreneurial activity and startup uh, action. Uh, I was going to ask you about the business climate in, in Montreal uh, and uh, uh, if you could say a few words about that uh, because you, you're sure. obviously a so success I'm, at it there. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I've, I've been in the startup community in a bunch of places, just actually every place you just mentioned, right? I've, I've, I've been in the Valley. I've been in uh, Vancouver and Toronto in, uh, in, in LA. I spent some time there um, and now in Montreal. And so um, the opportunity to build successful startups has decentralized quite significantly over the last 20 years. And that's mainly because talent and capital has decentralized, right? And so we've had uh, just a great experience in Montreal. Like I, I moved here no, for no strategic reason. I moved here because my wife wanted to live here. So it was, it was that straightforward. But we found an incredibly exciting, supportive environment. Uh, the, the economics are great. The government support for startups is great. Uh, like just to give you one example, in, in Montreal, in Quebec, if you spend a dollar on R&D, the government will give you 82 cents of that back, not even as a credit against revenue or future taxes, literally as a check. You just spend the dollars and you get 82 cents back wired to you uh, a few months later. Um, so that's really hard to beat when it comes to doing hardcore R&D. Now you add in that, uh, you know, compensation is very, you know, cost of living is low, compensation is very, you know, competitive, um, and it makes it super efficient to build companies here. Uh, lifestyle is good. So I, I honestly, we've been asked over the years whether Talamon should have an office in the Bay Area. And many of our companies, uh, you know, have contemplated moving to the Bay Area or, or, or shifting headquarters, uh, in part because we have so many investors from the U.S., probably about half, more than half of our capital into our companies other than us has come from uh, U.S.-based investors. And uh, no company has ever shifted. Uh, at all, like some have opened, hired like a BizDev person in the Valley or something like that, but uh, sustained core uh, central mass is, in, is always in Montreal. Um, and that's for a reason. That's because they all make that economic assessment and go, we're better off building this company here than building it in San Francisco. That that doesn't mean that you can't build great companies in the Bay Area. Obviously you can, but it, it's the opposite. It's also true. It's, you can also build great companies elsewhere. Uh, and there's a lot of hubs for that. Montreal has the additional benefit that the whole AI thing has really exploded globally and Montreal happens to be sort of one of the epicenters with, uh, you know, the Joshua Benjo has built this, you know, he's one of the three fathers of deep learning, has built this giant organization over the last 30 years here 
uh, with just tons of talent around AI. Uh, and so when that field popped open, there just happened to be a ton of talent in Montreal for that purpose. So, so a final question for you, Elga. What, what do you think will be the key technologies for the display industry and, and more broadly for the, the tech world? I mean, after all, this is the display show, so I have to uh, bring it back to displays um, and, and adjacent and surrounding areas. Um, if you can articulate the hottest areas, I am certain that our viewers will be interested in your guidance and your opinions on this. I'll give it my best shot. So within the narrowly displayed technology space, uh, I think the biggest opportunity is going to be in viewers' interaction of the display as opposed to viewers' experience. So right, if you think of viewers' experience as you know great image quality, big displays, wonderful colors, and all this stuff, and um, I think we're hitting sort of diminishing return there. Uh, and this this is pains me to say because I spent my startup journey introducing high dynamic range, which is all about just nicer looking pictures, essentially. Um, and there certainly is still some room to go in improving brightness and some color and, and so forth. But um, there, there will be, I think, a limit as an industry for how much more you can push that before it just looks really, really good and there's not much more headway. Uh, but the experience with displays in terms of interactivity, in terms of more... Uh, atypical environments, right? Uh, more flexibility, and I don't mean flexibility literally just in the sense of flexible displays, but flexibility of utilization, you know, where these displays exist and so forth. Um, that I think is the, is the big new frontier and that will go on for, for quite some time. Um, in the, in the broader display, in the broader industry outside of displays, there's a lot of cool stuff happening. I think, I think uh, kind of adjacent to displays, uh, there's no doubt, doubt that the AI kind of deep learning space, computer vision, uh, computational imaging will have a huge impact on the display industry because it will create the content, the data, and the human interactivity that displays will have to adapt to, right? So if, if deep learning figures out how to do some really clever, sophisticated stuff with cameras, displays have to adapt to that because they'll have to show that content and visualize it, right? Um, so... Those are the sort of the pure display and adjacent. Um, in a really broader picture, uh, we've made a few investments recently in the brain-computer interface space, which is uh, you know quite far out, but that uh, that's got me really excited about the long term. I, I think there's going to be really tremendous opportunities in in connecting you know more explicitly our mental state to the to the computational world around us. But that's it's going to take a while before that shows up at Display Week. Well, and that's one of the compelling things about displays is that it's not really about a display device as much as it is the primary point of interface between the human and these machines that do all these great things for us. Um, well, it's, it's been an enlightening conversation, Helga. I very much appreciate your taking the time uh, to speak with us and, and with our audience. Uh, thank you so much, and we look forward to hearing of more great things to come from Tandem Launch in the future. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. It's been a, yeah, it's been a great discussion and I look forward to a bright future for the display show. And I look forward to seeing you at SID also. Thanks so much, Elga. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.